All right, Acts 13 is where we're at. So uh, we are um, seeing today that the Christian life, uh, the whole of the Christian life is really a calling to be sent out by Jesus to make him known to the rest of the world, to those around us, to those who are lost and need him. And that's really the, the turn of the book. We've seen in the first 12 chapters kind of this back and forth between Jerusalem and what's happening there in that church. Uh, and then the persecution ramps up in, in Jerusalem and people get scattered out of Jerusalem and bring the gospel with them. But today, the, the book turns its attention, Luke turns his attention to uh, the, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas and these two guys who are actually deliberately sent on mission to make Jesus known to the, to the lands far off from Israel. And so we're starting that today, and really that'll take us through most of the rest of Acts with a few uh, brief stops back in Jerusalem along the way. But, um, but, but I want us to understand that this is really the heart of the book of Acts, is that we are, as Christ's people, sent out by him, just as Paul was, just as Barnabas was, even though we may not have the exact same calling that they had, we're all called uh, to help people meet Jesus. And, and that's what John Piper has to say about it. I thought this was a helpful quote. I think this is from his book, uh, Let the Nations Be Glad. But he wrote this, God is pursuing with omnipotent passion a worldwide purpose of gathering joyful worshipers for himself from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He has an inexhaustible enthusiasm for the supremacy of his name among the nations. Therefore, let us bring our affections into line with his. And for the sake of his name, let us renounce the quest for worldly comforts and join his global purpose. And that really is, I think, what we're all called to do. I agree with John Piper on this. I think he hits it exactly right. God longs for everyone in the world to know him and hear him, hear of him and respond to him. But he uses us to go and do that. And so we're going to see today some, uh, of these, uh, some of these missionaries from the early church, uh, a couple of guys, primarily Paul and Barnabas. Um, and even though they had their unique calling and we have our unique calling, um, because some of us will be called perhaps to far off lands as missionaries. Others of us are all called to our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends and our family members to bring Christ to each person and, and every one of us as a Christian is called into that mission work, regardless of whether it's near or far. Paul and Barnabas are called off to go far away, but not every Christian is. Some Christians are called to stay where they are. And so each person has to determine where the Lord is leading them. And so we've, we've seen the missionary kind of heart of the book of Acts already as the church has moved out of Jerusalem, uh, largely due to persecution, right, They've been kind of pushed out because of uh, the, the pushback from the Jewish leaders there. But ultimately, uh, we're seeing here some intentional sending of Paul and Barnabas. So if you want to look with me at the first few verses here of Acts 13, this sets it up for us. It says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. 
So that's an interesting group of people. They're all from different places. They're all, they're diverse in their backgrounds. Um, we know that uh, uh, Barnabas is from Cyprus, and that's going to come back into the story here. We, we know Saul is, uh, uh, the, who ultimately becomes known as the Apostle Paul. Uh, you've got these guy, this guy who's like a lifelong friend of Herod, who we just learned about. And Herod was like being crazy and killed James and arrested Peter. And his lifelong friend became a Christian and is now in the church in Antioch. It's pretty wild to think of. God is saving people from all kinds of backgrounds, brings them all together into this church. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So here in this church in Antioch, there's a group of Christians worshiping together, praying together, asking for God's wisdom and guidance. And the Holy Spirit speaks to them and says, you need to send out Paul and Barnabas for me. And so they do. They, they lay their hands, they commission them, they send them out. And Paul and Barnabas are called to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And of course, this whole sending of Christians is in the model of Jesus himself, right? Jesus modeled this for us as he left heaven to come to earth to bring salvation to us. So now he says to his disciples, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And that's the model, that's the pattern that we see. Jesus was sent for us. We're then sent on his behalf to go into the world and bring the message of salvation through him. And I think that this should be the heart of each of us as Christians, if we're Christians in the room, to help people know and love Jesus. To do that, we must go to them, to speak to them, so that they have the opportunity to believe. This is why, as a church at Springbrook, we plant churches. We believe in the planting of churches both here and abroad. We support that work. We support that effort because we believe that the, that's the model of the book of Acts As we're going to see Paul and Barnabas go into these places and they establish churches as they go. We think that that is the strategy that God uses to reach the world. And we're all committed to that here at Springbrook. We give our money to that. We pray for that. We give our efforts to it. And, and, these, and this is modeled in the book of Acts for us. So they go out, Paul and Barnabas, they're sent out. And here's where they go. Um, chapter 13 and 14, these two chapters record for us Paul and Barnabas's first missionary journey. Now there's three different journeys that, uh, that Luke records for us in the book of Acts. This is the first. And then they're going to come back, kind of going to do a loop. And then they'll go on another journey. But Paul and Barnabas will separate at some point in in the book here, and they'll go their separate ways, but they're going to go on these different journeys, and this is the first one. And um, throughout this first missionary journey, we're going to see a number of characteristics that they possess that make them effective missionaries as far as their effectiveness can go, because ultimately God brings the results of the work. But they have, they have several characteristics in their lives that we should look at and consider in our own lives as well. So if you want to look with me at verse 4 through 12, we'll read these verses first. It says, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they set sail to Cyprus. 
When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. So let's stop there for a minute. They're, they're leaving Antioch, which is basically just, just near uh, Israel, kind of in Damascus. Uh, they set sail because Cyprus is an island. So if you don't know where Cyprus is, it's an island in the Mediterranean Sea. It's still there believe it or not. And uh, they, they go to Cyprus and that's off the southern coast of Turkey. They're eventually going to go to Turkey. Now, of course, our, the names of these countries have changed in our day, except for Cyprus. That actually still is the name. But a lot of these names and cities have changed from 2,000 years ago till today. But that's kind of the geography of what we're seeing. They go down to the port of Seleucia. They get on a boat. They sail to Cyprus. And when they arrive in Salamis, which is the port city there on the uh, eastern end of Cyprus, they, they go to the synagogue and they preach to the Jewish people. Now that's going to become a pattern for Paul. He's going to go to the synagogues first in any city he goes to. The reason for that, in, in short, is because that's where the low-hanging fruit is for the gospel. There's already an understanding among the Jewish people of the Old Testament. Paul just has to kind of fill in the the leftover stuff, the most important stuff, of course, being the Jesus. But he doesn't have to start from completely zero with them. So that's where he starts typically. But uh, we'll see that a little bit later in this chapter too. All right, so when they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, Elamus is a word that means sorcerer, uh, he opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So Paul and Barnabas work their way through the island of Cyprus. They're going to various cities. They work their way to this particular place, um, and they, to Paphos, and there they meet this, this very bizarre situation. Here's a guy who's described as a magician. Now, don't think about a guy in a cheap tuxedo pulling a rabbit out of a hat. Okay, that's not, that's not the kind of magician we're talking about. We're talking about a sorcerer, a guy who's embedded in the occult, the, the deep, these deep, dark things, and uh, the ESV translates it magician. That's that's okay, but think about like really deep wick, like witchcraft stuff, the, the dark occultic stuff. That's what this guy's in. But he's also a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus, which Bar-Jesus means son of Jesus, which is the opposite of what he is actually in, in practice, which is funny. Um, but he is working for, he is with this guy, Sergius Paulus, who is a proconsul, meaning he's a, go- a Roman government official in Cyprus. He's probably functionally kind of uh, a governor of, of the island nation of, uh, of Cyprus, and he's there by the Roman government. So here you got this really bizarre situation. You've got a high up government official from Rome who is calling on these two guys, Paul and Barnabas, to hear what they have to say, because evidently what they're saying gets to him. Somehow he hears about it through word of mouth. He calls them there, but Bar-Jesus, a lamest, uh, is also referred to here, uh, uh, 
decides to oppose them and basically try to keep the proconsul away from the faith. And what in the world is going on? Well, we'll, we'll see in a second. Let's keep reading because here's how Paul deals with this. But Saul, who is also called Paul, so Paul is the Greek name that Paul goes by. So when he's not in Israel, he goes by Paul because that's the Gentile kind of version of his name. So that, think about it that way. We're going to call him Paul probably from, from here on out. Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You, son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. All right, so, so Paul basically just looks at this guy, this sorcerer who's also Jewish. He's a false prophet. He's got all these descriptors. And he just tells him some really harsh things. He calls him the son of the devil. He calls him a worker of all, of the enemy of righteousness, full of deceit. He's a liar. He's villainous. And he's making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. Now, that seems like really a harsh way to go at this guy, right? From our sentiments and from our mentality, it's like, why is Paul coming at this guy so strongly? Well, we need to understand what's happening here. We need to understand that Paul is utilizing uh, what Micah says in the Old Testament book of Micah chapter 3, where we get some background information on what's going on with this guy, Bar-Jesus. If you look at uh, Micah 3, you don't have to turn there. You can listen, but if you want to turn there, you can. We'll start in verse 5 and read down to verse 12. And here's what the prophet Micah said hundreds and hundreds of years before this. He said, Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore, it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black, uh, be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with the power of the Spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is it not the Lord in the midst is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of Zion, you Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the Lord a wooded height. Now, notice what Paul's doing with this guy. This is this guy is basically the embodiment of everything Micah 
chapter 3 is warning against. To, to understand this, we need to see it, right? He's, he's declaring war against God's ministers. He's opposing them to keep Sergius Paulus from the faith. This is what he says in verse 5, right? He, they, they declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths, meaning anyone who doesn't profit them, they're going to declare war against. Sergius Paulus has this guy bar Jesus in his employment because he's superstitious, he's Roman, he believes in a pantheon of gods, he doesn't understand the true gospel, and so he's hired this sorcerer to work for him to tell him things. And this guy just is making stuff up probably half the time, but he's getting paid. And now Paul and Barnabas show up and basically threaten to, for this guy to lose his livelihood because if this guy becomes a Christian, he's out of a job. And so he's going to declare war against them. That's what Micah says will happen, and that's what happens. Then we see that God literally blinds him, this, this false prophet, just as he promised in Micah, right? That you will, it, it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. Basically, you, you want to pretend like you have an access point to God? Well, I'm going to blind you, and God literally blinds this man physically. We also see Paul declare this man's sin to him. He calls him what he is. And this is what Micah says would happen, filled with the spirit of the Lord to declare to Jacob his transgression and Israel his sin. Paul's filled with the Holy Spirit and calls out this man's sin. We see that this man is called out for making crooked all that is straight, just as the end of verse 9 says, they detest justice and make crooked all that is straight. This is what Paul is literally saying to the man. He's, he's fulfilling this, this prophecy in this regard. He's taking this false prophet and he's putting him in his place. Now, what does that have to teach us? Because this is probably never going to be our situation, right? What does this teach us about uh, Christian outreach and mission? And what's the principle here? I think the principle that we need to see here is that there is there needs to be courage in God's people to do what needs to be done, to say what needs to be said. Paul is being courageous here. He's not shying away from this man. He's not going, well, I don't know how to handle this, so I'm just going to pretend it's not happening. He doesn't turn a blind eye to it. He calls it out for what it is. He calls out the lies. And it takes courage to do that. In his day, it took courage, and in our day, it takes courage to speak truth, to, to bring to bear what is right and what is accurate. There's courage here. And ultimately, the problem with this guy Bar-Jesus is that he's profiting, he's making money off of this poor, this, this rich guy, but poor spiritually, this guy who is, uh, who, who is just lost and needs his way found to Jesus. And Bar-Jesus is happy to deceive him, happy to lead him astray, happy to tell him whatever it is that makes him happy because that way he can continue to line his pockets. And there's been a long history uh, uh, to our shame in the church of people using God for their own gain. We can read through the, the Acts of the Old Testament and see it over and over again. We can see it, examples of it in the New Testament where people are using their own selfishness 
to use, try to use God in some way to line their pockets. And I know that for most of us, we're not actively doing that, at least in, not in the way we, we think of in this regard. But I think we need to ask ourselves some hard questions because we're not inherently better than Bar-Jesus. We are sinners just as he's a sinner. And we have the same proclivities and the same temptations. It's just that if we're not like this, it's because Jesus has shown us mercy and helped us. But I think we should ask ourselves these questions. Are we using God for his gifts or do we actually love God and are grateful for his gifts, but it's God we want, not the gifts? I think that's the subtle danger we've got to ask ourselves. Because a lot of Christians, a lot of times in my own heart, I see this in my own life. is like, do I follow Jesus because of him and what he's done for me and in saving me? Or do I follow Jesus because of what he can tangibly do in my life? And we've got to always call ourselves back to the truth of the gospel in that. Paul is confronting this as it's in front of him. And he has courage to say the truth, even if it's what people don't want to hear. He says it. And I think that's vital for us because God uses Paul's courage to bring the proconsul to faith. Here we have an example of a high-level Roman official becoming a Christian. Now, notice that he's nameless in this. Luke is not trying to like brag about who's on team Jesus. He just gives us this anonymous proconsul from Cyprus. We have no idea who he is today. No idea. Oh, Sergius Paulus, I'm sorry. But we don't know anything about him. He does, he's gone down in history as just this guy in the book of Acts. And yet here he comes to Jesus and he believes and he trusts in Christ. All right, so we see courage there. That's something we need too if we're going to see the gospel reach people. Let's keep reading. Verse 13 and 14 says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. So now they've set sail. Like Again, we don't have the geography in our heads here, but they're on the northern coast of Cyprus. They get on another boat, and now they're sailing for Perga, which is in modern-day Turkey, southern Turkey. It's on the coast. And we're told that John, who is also known as John Mark in the, in the book of Acts, leaves them at this point and returns to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Now, I want to hit on one more point on the courage issue before we move into the next thing we need. Um, to reach, the to reach the world with the gospel takes courage to go to hard places. And what we're seeing here, and I know this is lost on us and because we're just reading it on a page and we're not seeing it, but to get to Perga took you know, hundreds of miles to sail across the, the Mediterranean Sea. And then once you were there, you had to basically scale through these cliffs and climb these mountains to get to the, to the city. And we see this little mention, just one sentence, that, that John Mark leaves them and goes to Jerusalem. This is going to become a big problem for Paul and Barnabas in chapter 15. So we'll talk about this a little more when we get there. But ultimately, what we're seeing is that John Mark, in some way or for some reason, 
loses his courage. And he's like, all right, Cyprus was fine because Cyprus is like the Mediterranean version of Hawaii. It's a really comfortable climate. It's, you know, it's, it's a nice place to be. Now they're getting to the real stuff and now they got to climb mountains and scale cliffs. And that just turns out to be too much for John Mark. And I, and I don't know exactly why he dips out here, but he does. The Bible doesn't really give us a specific reason, but there's some clues, perhaps. And Kent Hughes, who is a commentator and a pastor, he, he gives us some insight in, from his point of view. He says that John Mark had probably inwardly romantic, romanticized ministry that they were undertaking, but then reality smashed his dreams. Now they're setting sail from the sunny shores of, uh, of Cyprus to the ominous cliffs of Perga, 175 miles away. There they may also have been, there may have also been sickness along the way because Paul did not preach in Pamphylia, but in Galatia. And he wrote in Galatians 4.13 that you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. Scholars conjecture that Paul might have caught malaria in in, uh, Pamphylia, which was notorious for that disease and then moved on to Galatia where, it was, where he could recover. All of this combined with John Mark's privileged upbringing was simply too much for him. Now, I don't know if any of that's necessarily true because the Bible doesn't lay it all out, but regardless of the reason, John Mark dips out. He loses courage. And, and thankfully, God strengthens Paul and Barnabas and the mission continues without John Mark. So they go on. This is, a, again, Paul, uh, Acts is not giving us every minute detail. It's giving us the highlights. So let's look at verse 15. They're in the synagogue in Pisidia. And it says, After the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus as he promised. So here's what we're seeing in Paul's mission. And we're going to see this over and over again. The second thing that we need to bring the gospel to people's lives is we need clarity. We need to be clear about the message of Jesus. And what we're seeing in these first, this first section of Paul's speech is that there is a clear presentation to the people in this synagogue in a culturally understandable way. 
He's speaking to people with a Jewish background. So naturally, he's using the Old Testament as his basis for getting to Jesus. He goes through the, the patriarchs, Abraham and his, his people, and then he goes to uh, Egypt and the Exodus, and then he goes to Cana and them getting the land with Joshua, and then he goes to the judges, and then he goes to Samuel, and then he goes to Saul, and then he goes to David, and then he says, oh, and by the way, God brings a savior through David, just as he promised, and his name's Jesus. He just swings through this quick overview of the Old Testament history and then goes, Christ is ultimately who Jesus, uh, who, who God sends to save us. He's preaching the gospel in a way that is culturally understandable. Now, when, G, when, when Paul starts to speak of Jesus in Gentile contexts, in Athens, in other cities without the synagogue being a part of it, he doesn't use the Old Testament storyline to get people to see the gospel. He goes a different approach. He takes a different tact. But here, this is his audience. And so he's using it in a way that makes sense to them. And we need to recognize this. This is something that a lot of us don't think about, is that our, our context in Langlade County is different than a context in Southern California, praise God, uh, New York, right, the South. Uh, again, thank the Lord that we're, we are where we are. But we've got to think about our neighbors and how they can understand the gospel without compromising its message but making it make sense. And that does take some thinking and some work and some effort at times. But, but the people that we interact with on a daily basis are going to have a whole different set of questions about the message of Jesus than our neighbors and friends in Manhattan or somewhere else. There's just a different way that people think in different parts of the country, not, not even counting the rest of the world, right? And so we got to think through this culturally, in a way that makes sense and is understandable, but we need to bring clarity. The second thing we need to bring clarity about is found in 24 through 37. Let's keep reading Paul's speech here. He goes on to say, before his coming, before the coming of Christ, John, you know, he's talking about John the Baptist, had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me is one who is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried him, carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days, he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to their fathers, to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I've begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, 
he spoke this way. I will give you this holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption, meaning his body decayed. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So here's... um, Here's what Paul's doing. Paul is taking them from a culturally understandable message of Jesus getting into the world to then being very, very clear about what Jesus came to do, which is he came into the world to fulfill the promises of God by dying on a cross and rising from the dead. He spends a lot of time talking about the resurrection because the resurrection is the whole thing. If Jesus doesn't raise from the dead, he's no different than any other person who said that there's some, something important. But Jesus is alive, and Paul makes this point to his audience that Jesus died and rose so that we can be saved. And he's being very clear about that. That's what we have to be clear about too. We have to be clear that Jesus died for our sins and rose again from the dead so that we can be made right with him. And again, we got to think about that through our, our context without compromising that truth, speaking about it in a way that makes sense to our, our audience. Wait, Paul does that by quoting a whole bunch of Psalms because the Jewish people understood what the Psalms said. So he's using the Psalms as a way to prove his point from their scriptures. And, and we may have to use a different tactic, but that's, it's still teaching us the principle. Okay, let's finish his speech 38 through Uh, 41 says, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. We're seeing this this ultimate kind of landing of the plane, that forgiveness is through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ for those who believe. And those who believe receive that forgiveness through that. So Jesus is our hope, not our, not our good works, not our efforts. We don't save ourselves. We have to be right with God through his work. So he's very clear. He takes this group of people through their, their understanding of the scriptures to get to Jesus, to tell them how he died and rose and how they can have a relationship with him. Clarity. Clarity is what we need in our, in our day and speaking clearly about it, because there's a lot of confusion. I, just, just to highlight this, or to illustrate this, the average non-believer that you'll encounter, if you were to ask them, what is the Christian message about? They are going to say to you, almost guaranteed, they're going to say to you, well, just be a good person. Is that the Christian message? It is not. The Christian message. So there is a fundamental misunderstanding in our day of what Christianity even teaches. People don't know that it teaches something different. They think this book is just about being good and being nice and doing good things and hoping that it all works out. This message is different. It is about our inability to be that good person. We cannot be it. 
And so Jesus was for us and died the, the death we deserve to die and rose again to give us life. And that changes everything when we realize we're not here just because we're nice, good, decent people, but we're here because Jesus is for us what we could never be. And explaining that to people is our job. Okay, so you have courage and you've got confidence. There's one more thing, and it's going to start with a C because, of course, it will. Um, but look at 42 to 52. This is the get us to the end of the chapter. As they went out from the synagogue, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. They were like, come back next week. We want to hear more about this. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. So there are Jewish people from the synagogue and Gentiles who have converted to Judaism who are like, okay, we want what you guys have. And they're following Paul and Barnabas and they're coming to Christ. Who, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. So now you don't just have the, the Jewish community coming together. You've got the whole city has, has heard about this message and are like, we want to hear about this too. So now they show up to the synagogue on the next Sabbath day. But when the Jews... And now that is a reference not to each individual Jewish person, but to the leadership of the Jewish people. They saw the crowds and they were filled with jealousy. Yeah, because they never saw anything like this when they spoke at the synagogues, right? Now they see the crowds and they're filled with jealousy and they begin to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. So Paul's speaking about Jesus and they're going, -uh, no, not that. All right. As Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it is necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, to the Jewish people. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us saying, I've made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So Paul's saying, we have to come to you first. The gospel goes to the Jew first and then to the Greek. This is what Paul says in Romans. He has this whole pattern. He continues to do this everywhere he goes. But he's telling the Jewish leaders, if you guys want to reject this, that's on you. Like we're telling you what you need to know, but that's on you if you reject this. And we're going to go to the Gentiles because they're not going to reject it. Now, of course, he's not speaking individually of every person. There are Jews who are receiving Jesus and there's Gentiles who are going to reject Jesus. But as a whole, the Gentiles are going to embrace it and the Jewish people are going to reject it as a whole, not, not every individual. But verse 48 says this, and when the Gentiles heard this, heard that God is going to send Paul and Barnabas to the Gentiles, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews, again, the leaders of the Jews, incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their districts. 
but they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. All right, so here's the third thing we need to see uh, to be effective, faithful missionaries in our world. It is we need confidence. Paul has all the confidence in the world that God is sovereign, that God is sovereign to save sinners. Why? Because God was sovereign to save him. He wasn't searching for Jesus, and Jesus saved him anyways. And here's the whole thing in this passage. Some people are going to receive Jesus, and some people are going to reject Jesus. This was true in Paul's day. It's true in our day. But the hope and confidence that we have as we pursue people for Jesus is what is said in verse 48. That as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Here's what that verse tells us. The results of our efforts are not in our hands. The the results belong to God. Jesus will save people. People will respond to him. But it's never on us to figure out how to make that happen beyond just teaching and telling people the truth. Who responds to him is for him to work out. But let's not be discouraged because there will be results. There will be people who come to faith in Christ. You and I are among them if we believe in Jesus. God deals with it. God has his people. God is going to do his thing. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now, I don't, I don't know how all that tangibly works itself out, but that's because it's beyond my pay grade, right? This is, this is God's deal. The results of ministry are not in our control, and so let's not be discouraged. Let's have confidence in what God is doing. And ultimately, ultimately, the reason that we can have courage and clarity and confidence is because Jesus rose and rose again from the dead. And without him, we're lost. Without him, all of this is pointless. So let's keep looking to Jesus as we pursue our friends and neighbors and co-workers and family members who are lost without Jesus. Let's keep our eyes firmly set on Christ. This is what the writer of Hebrews tells us to do as he gets to the end of his, his letter to the Hebrew believers. He's saying, we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. So let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Our path forward has to be look to Jesus, trust him, be courageous because he's alive, be clear about his message and have confidence that he's going to do what he's going to do. All right, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you have given us the gospel and that there is um, nothing that we have to do beyond believing and trusting in you to be saved. We don't have to work ourselves down to the bone to be right with you because you worked 
you worked for us. You lived the life we couldn't live. You endured the cross that we deserved. You are alive today and you are seated at the right hand of your Father. And we pray you would help us to keep our eyes firmly fixed on that. And that you would help us to pursue those in our lives who need you because they're lost without you. And that you would give us the courage and the clarity and the confidence we need. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.